Hello, this is Brian from Living in the End Times with Amos and X. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to follow us on social media. Give us a favorable rating on the podcast app of your choice, say CastBox or Podcast Republic. And most importantly, support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash endtimespodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash endtimespodcast, one word. And thank you in advance. Model Village, released 2020, September. Yes, brand new. Uh, okay. I was going to – I just saw an article that Trump will negotiate third term because, quote, I'm entitled to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Boomer. But Forbes is <laughs> – yeah, Forbes is making me uh, – it's giving me the business. I can't you – know. <laughs> Well, they've been, uh, I guess, satisfyingly on point lately, and I don't want to say progressive Forbes, but their their reporting's been interesting lately. Last six, it's, six, eight months. It's because um, apparently they they're not like a real like magazine anymore. They just like get any let anybody write columns for them. Hmm. Um, so I think that's the reason. It's just a wild west now. Um, here we go. So Trump says he will negotiate third term because he's entitled to it. Uh, President Trump said Saturday that he plans to negotiate to run again in 2024 if he wins re-election in November. His latest in a series of comments that has alarmed that have alarmed critics who say he has little regard for constitutional boundaries. Um, and it's just it's not an article. It was just the you know sort of a. Headline masked as an article. A teaser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nice. And so, like, that's the sort of stakes of where we're at. I mean, that, like, low stakes, like, there's, like, if, let's say he, well, uh, okay. We're not going to talk that much about politics uh, on this episode uh, in this way, but, um, meaning electoral politics, but I do just want to sort of gloss over a little bit of what I've been seeing like in the last couple of weeks, last week specifically. So recording on September 13th mm-hmm. um, on the cover of the star tribune, which is Minneapolis's big paper. Um, 
they said that they had a headline that the headline, like the top line was um, that Russia's already interfering in the election um, or trying to hack the election, which uh, anyone who's paid close attention to this shit knows that the Russia gate was a hoax. Um, it's a literal conspiracy theory, no evidence to back any of it up manufactured by, um, people within the deep state, um, like all the CIA, like basically everything they used as quote evidence was manufactured by, um, either the CIA or private contractors to make it like appear a certain way, but there was no sourcing and no evidence of any actual collusion between Trump and, uh, Russia. And, you know, for more info, watch the last four years of Jimmy Dore and Aaron Maté um, and, you know, Glenn Greenwald, et cetera. So that's all been thoroughly debunked, but is it, at no, you know, in no way, like, um, effectively understood by anyone. That being said, the general population gives no shit about Russiagate to begin with. Um, why it's significant now though, to me is that if they're Russiagating before the elections even happening, which means they're basically, they have even less evidence than before, less than nothing. Um, so that, that's one data point or whatever. The other one is I was watching Alex Jones this week and they're, they're pointing to like, he had Roger Stone on, which is not unusual. Um, Anyway, but they were talking about there's this Daily Beast article um, spelling out like kind of a theory for what happens if Trump won't leave office, and it's it's effectively like I mean they're they're being extremely bombastic, but their claim was that um, effectively it's an act of sedition because you had like I think General Flynn or maybe it was Mattis who sort of flipped and is not like team Trump anymore or whatever um, effect they're claiming that he's engaged in sedition. And so the, the risk here of course, is that um, so you have the, those two fact and then I watched, so that's, so you have like the liberal media is the Russiagate version, the sort of right hardcore Trumpers would be the Alex Jones version. And then there's sort of a third track, which is like the, quasi-progressive online left um, people like uh, Graham Elwood. So he had Whitney Webb on and she's, her stuff's pretty good. She's just, she's trying to do like investigative journalism around stuff that people consider to be conspiratorial, like the Epstein shit or um, there's like, she does, she actually goes into like the actual like shady shit around the CIA's like, verified links around child trafficking and stuff like that, NGOs, et cetera. So <clears throat> she was covering on Graham Elwood's show, like this story about how they've already run simulations about like what to do if Trump won't leave office. But there's, this is sort of like the democratic side of the inside, the establishment inside the deep state, like the, the it's not the left, but like the non Trump version of that and 
that they have all these plans that they've run through like think tanks and stuff to basically use the sort of um, the right wing scare thing has been for a long time continuity of government, which is like a series of like, if, if certain things, if shit goes down and you declare a state of emergency, you can institute uh, continuity of government, which like unifies and sort of like turns into a pure dictatorship, the U S until uh, at the federal level until, you know, whatever the state of emergency is over or whatever. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but that's kind of the idea. Um, she was just going, running down like all of these, um, these things that were published or whatever that she verified. And so like, that means that on all sides, you know, even among this sort of moderate left, like there's this sense of the election is not legitimate. And like, the reason that's dangerous obviously is, um, I, I'm sort of convinced now that no one will accept the results of the election. No one, no matter what, no matter matter what happens. Um, or there will be enough, like the, the division is so great that enough people on one side won't accept it such that it's plausible that you're going to have like mass uprisings. So, we can game out like what that would look like. Let's say Biden wins the election. I don't think he will. Um, but <clears throat> let's say that he does obvious, the obvious, well, and then you have like the QAnon people who are, um, they're like Alex, they make Alex Jones look like, um, I don't even know, like, like, uh, I can't even think of someone who's like an actual moderate anymore to, give an example of but like whatever they make alex jones look much saner than you know depending on your perspective he already is i guess whatever um like they make him look nonpartisan. let's put it that way um and the i think alex jones is sane he just happens to also be extremely racist and dangerous in certain ways like he's he uh, he's good at what he does and that's not me standing his position. I'm just saying like um, he's more effective than people want to give him credit for, but the QAnon people are engaged in um, a a pure, like a very, very crazy um, version of reality where effectively like, Trump is the savior for all things. Like it's been described by some as like the combination of a cult and a mental illness and like a political, like counter revolution or, you know, whatever. Um, I guess I'm sort of editorializing, but basically it's, this, it's very difficult to shake people out of this because they think they're fighting pedophiles and they think that like somehow Trump is the answer. And then like, they're worried about authoritarian takeovers, but at the same time, they're willing to back Trump as an authoritarian. Um, if Trump loses, there's no telling what that. There are there are a lot of fucking people who are into it, like millions of people in America buy into Q at some level. Um, there's a pretty good uh, podcast. I think it's called like QAnon Anonymous or something, where they. There's these leftists who track it and they kind of debunk um, a lot of the crazier claims and they show how like 
basically the use of like these message boards like 8chan or 8kun or whatever. Um, they're, people will take real news stories and literally doctor them and make them sound crazier and then distribute that as, it's, as though it's real and then people just run with it. So um, I was also watching to the same point, like why, why is this election going to do this? So like, anyway, the QAnon people, um, if Trump loses, they'll, who knows what they'll do. Maybe they won't do anything. Maybe they're too disorganized, I hope. But um, I think Chomsky's right. There's a threat that they'll just show up around the White House armed or the militias and just, we don't know what'll happen. We don't know what the army would do in that situation. Um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has already said that um, he, he said the no matter what happens in the election, the military will not get involved, um, which is good. Like I'm glad that they're saying that. But the, he's signaling to Trump that they're not going to help Trump. That's the main thing, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but you know, if who who, know, who fucking knows? Like Chomsky said, we, you know, we have a this is unprecedented in American history, this level of like social disruption. Um, so there's that. And then you have, you know, if Trump wins the, 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 the political establishment may or may not back, may, may or may not back that legitimacy. And there's different, and, and all the sort of quasi left liberal, uh, anti-Trumpers will definitely be, there will be, um, there's going to, that would probably create real like sustained riots. Uh, I think well beyond what we're seeing, what we've seen already this summer, um, which will then quote unquote justify, uh, retaliation by the police. Since, as I said in previous episodes, the real danger, one of the, since 16, my biggest fear or the biggest danger I saw with Trump was his direct attempt and successfully we've seen a move to politicize the police and the military, but more dangerously the police. Um, And just today, I believe he basically said that when the, when the, I don't know who, what law enforcement agency it was. I don't know if it was DHS or uh, Portland PD or whoever, but that guy who killed, allegedly killed the right-wing protester in Portland, the cops just rolled up on him. As soon as they found him, they just started shooting. They just executed him in the street, assassinated him. And Trump backed that play, said there needed to be retaliation, which is extremely dangerous. Um, That's like well beyond the pale of, um, like you start walking down that path and there's no end in sight. Like there's like, even from his own perspective, like that destab- potentially destabilizes things so severely that, um, there may be no coming back from it. If it mm-hmm. exacerbates like long enough. And what I mean by that is it won't be like with the Nazis where you have this slow, uh, you know, whatever octopus like takeover, getting taking over the entire state and centralizing everything, and then dis and in the process disappearing all your political enemies in a systematic way. Um, what Trump's doing is unleashing these overarmed, unaccountable paramilitary groups, i.e., the pigs, all over the place, and he doesn't have say over any of them. 
And those people may or may not break in whatever direction he's pushing them. Like this would be so almost like a right wing cultural revolution where he's just sort of giving like Mao did to the, 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 the youth saying basically overthrow all institutions. And then you had just like massive, you know, interpersonal violence in the guise of struggle sessions and ideological purity and shit like that. Um, with the police, it's much more dangerous because they already have sort of tactical control over cities, at least to a degree. Um, and there's no telling once you unleash that as a political force, what you get, like you might, we might go through a period like, in Mexico where the federal police are working with the criminals and um, you don't know who's paying who. And it's just becomes like increasingly violent. Like it won't get to the level of Mexico, but I'm just saying like, it might be that sort of social breakdown. Um, and then the, on the other side, like I think it's very unlikely for any sort of like even quasi nominal left-wing uprising um, to have any serious, um, leverage or even I, the left really isn't organized like that, to be honest, it, you know, it is in pockets and it gets all sensationalized, but it's not really there. Um, the only way it would ever get there is if the right right wing militias were so violent, were taking over state legislatures and sort of disrupting the rule of law, then you would have some sort of retaliation. But at that point we're kind of, we're in, completely dark waters. Like, I don't know what that looks like. Um, and so anyway, that's just sort of my view of like at the moment, like, again, it's because of what we talked about before, like there's no response by the establishment to any of this, except Trump kind of egging on the police and the vigilantes. Like he, he kind of did what I predicted he would do. Like he, he didn't address the Kenosha thing during the RNC, but then after he kind of, he hinted that the kid was, did the right thing because he was, they were probably going to kill him or something like that, which didn't really get any press. Um, the fact that that didn't even get covered is probably also pretty ominous considering the press loves to just fucking play up everything. Dumb shit. All the dumb shit Trump says. Um, I think there's sort of a retreat from trying to even, pretend to cover what's happening at a certain level. Um, and that's all happening in the backward backdrop of all of the other nightmare problems that we're facing COVID, the, the force, the West coast is literally all on fire, which we'll get to in a minute. But like, um, yeah, I, I guess there's things are just getting increasingly more unstable, like almost day to day. And there's no, there's no one even offering a solution to any of this. Like any, no one, not fucking, not even Bernie from the sidelines or anything like that. It's just simply, it's kind of a showdown right now. It's just a standoff to wait, wait out until the election. And then I think that's when whatever's going to be triggered will be triggered. And I have no fucking clue what that is. No, I totally agree. I've been thinking ominous thoughts this week as well, and I don't, don't I have no idea what's coming. But right, it's bad. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh shit! Sorry, I was tweaking the audio a little bit. Um, all right. Well, 
So we should uh, move into the environmental collapse, which is kind mm -hmm. of what we want to focus on. Um, so do you want to read the first article? Sure. Okay. This is the biodiversity one? Yeah. All right. So from The Ecologist, uh, the journal for the post-industrial age, we have a story from uh, 10 September. 2020 biodiversity collapses by two-thirds in 50 years. Conservation uh, charity uh, WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, said nature was in freefall due to human activity, mainly intensive agriculture and destruction of habitat. That's the subhead. Uh, global wildlife populations have declined by more than two-thirds in less than fewer than 50 years. A new report has warned conservation charity WWF said nature was in freefall, quote-unquote, due to human activity, mainly intensive agriculture and the destruction of habitats and forests to produce food as it published its latest Living Planet report. The wildlife group is calling for national laws to stop supply chains for food and other products from driving deforestation and destruction of wild areas and for people to shift from meat and dairy to more, quote, plant-based diets, unquote. Uh, elephant, there is also a need to tackle the vast amounts of food that is lost and wasted throughout the supply chains and by retailers and consumers, it said, from elephants in Central Africa uh, and leatherback turtles in Costa Rica to Arctic skuas in uh was it Orkney and uh, gray partridges in the UK, the populations of wild animals, birds and fish are tumbling, the report warned. The biggest driver of wildlife losses is changes to land, sea and water use by human activities, uh, such as uh, unsustainable agriculture, logging and development. Wildlife also faces over exploitation, such as overfishing, threats from invasive species and disease, pollution, and increasingly, of course, climate change. While conservation measures have helped species such as forest elephant in, uh, forest elephant in Ghana and tigers in Nepal on their own, they will not be enough to reverse the downward trends, WWF said. Uh, but action to transform food production, including more sustainable agriculture, cutting waste, and moving to healthier diets to put less pressure on the planet while still providing enough for people to eat can help nature recover. The Living Planet indexed by uh, the Zoological Society of London, ZSL, as part of the report tracks the abundance of uh, over 20,000 populations of 4,392 species of mammals, reptiles, birds, fish, and amphibians. Overall, it found that monitored wildlife populations have declined in size by an average of 68% between 1970 and 2016, the most recent year for which data is available. In Latin America and the Caribbean, populations have crashed by 94% on average as grasslands, wetlands, and forests are converted to agriculture. Uh, species are overexploited. Climate change takes hold and disease and invasive species take their toll. Populations of freshwater species have seen a steep decline of 84% in less than 50 years, the index shows. The report also draws on other assessments which show species at an increasing risk of extinction, that soil is losing much of its rich diversity of life in many parts of the world, and that plants are seriously threatened. Tanya Steele, uh, chief executive at WWF, said nature is in freefall, quote, uh, we have seen significant declines in population sizes of wildlife species around the world. That downward trend does not seem to be abating, unquote. She warned that humans were burning forests, polluting and overfishing the seas, and destroying wild areas. Quote, we are wrecking our world, the one place we call home, risking our health, uh, security, and survival here on earth. Now nature is sending us a desperate SOS and time is running out, unquote. Um, she called on the government of UK to fast track tough new nature laws that protect wildlife at home and abroad and to use uh, key COP26, quote, uh, climate talks, uh, talks in Glasgow next year to secure urgent commitments and action from world leaders. Sir David Attenborough, 
So there was an opportunity to achieve a balance with the natural world, which would require systematic or systemic shifts in how people produce food, create energy, manage the oceans, and use materials. Quote, but above all, it will require a change in perspective, a change from viewing nature as something that's optional or, quote, uh, quote in the quote, nice to have, to the single greatest ally we have in restoring balance to our world, unquote, the naturalist and broadcaster said. In the essay published as part of a series alongside the Living Planet Report, uh, Sir David Attenborough called for international cooperation to tackling the issue. Okay. So, I mean, it's just like apocalyptic, obviously. Right. Like these are insane numbers, like 68%. Um, like wildlife populations have declined in size by an average of 68% between 1970 and 2016. I mean, and then the Latin, Latin American Caribbean populations have crashed by 94% on average. Like, I mean, that, that means there's nothing left. Like there's in no the recovery. Latter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there, hopefully that's not totally true, but there's nothing sure. there <laughs> right. now. Um, right. But yeah, unfortunately, likely no recovery possible. Very little chance of recovery, yeah. um, I mean, I don't know that, but I'm just like deducing that. Like, meaning, uh, I don't know how these resiliences work or not. That's true, I don't either. Um, But regardless, like the the end is here um, Mm. as such. And so like the, the problem that we face is and then we'll get into the California wildfires. As I'll read the next article as like a almost more extreme, um, more extreme example of the overbearing problem of like. I don't know if people are. I, I don't have a good understanding or answer or whatever, but like to some degree somehow there's there's a question that's like on people are unable to address at any level like in mass there's not we saw like the emergence of like the outcry from the young you know last was it last fall or the fall prior like 2018 we had that insane climate report that was you know, spelling doom for the world uh, very quickly if things weren't shifted, if there wasn't a, a like, the amount of spending equivalent to World War II um, to completely reverse course. And then, you know, last year, Greta Thunberg and, and the rest, uh, all those kids sort of rose up to whatever degree, um, and then COVID hit. And so, like... I mean, these are like insane fucking numbers. Like this should be kind of all that's being talked about besides COVID at this point, but it's not, it's not addressed in any significant way by the political establishment or even like, you know, ominously it's not like, I'm not on Twitter, but like, that's not like dominating people's thinking uh, on the platform. Trending, yeah. Well, yeah, trending, trending heavily. Um, at least it doesn't seem that way because I'm not usually you see spillover into Facebook, but it's not like taken seriously for whatever reason. Um, and this is like extremely alarming 
that the the lack of response by anyone is like what what's most alarming to me at least in the short term um especially since like as this is sort of unfolding like and then like last week there's an article about how all the worst case scenario climate predictions we are 100 percent on track with the worst case right now um and the worst case is very dark uh very very dangerous like you know chomsky you know again saying that like it threatens organized human life in a very short period of time um and so i guess we can just let's see a response or let you respond and then i'll read the mike davis piece yeah i know and maybe davis will get into this we were talking off uh off air about the Adam Curtis film Hypernormalization, which you've brought up in the past before, and I finally got a chance to see it. But it, um, I mean, this this climate change stuff is just emblematic or symptomatic of that. It's a perfect case study, but there's other cases as well of the ways in which um, the, the ruling elites or just uh, elected officials have retreated. Um, people who are supposed to be in charge of all this have sort of given way to the financialization, I think, of the uh, of everything, and that's through neoliberal economics, of course, but the, you know, to your point about no responses, like nobody knows what to do and they're not doing anything about it because they're in some ways, they're incapable of doing anything about it. And that's again, by design. And that's just kind of where we see ourselves from, uh, from COVID to climate change. It's, I mean, it's everything and people don't, they're doing nothing and don't know what to do. I don't know if they don't know what to do though. That's right. I mean, I think it's made to appear that way, but I don't, like there's already like baked into like the science, you know, in the way that the reports are written, like the data shows that in order to reverse course, we need to uh, re restructure the world mm. and we need massive spending in that direction. Like yeah. that's the plan. That is right. the, we know what to do. Everyone knows what to do, but they act like it's not happening. Well, maybe or, that, Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was interrupting you, but I was just going to say maybe it's – I should re I should clarify. It's maybe not so much you don't know what to do, but there's – they don't know – maybe they don't know how to do it, politically speaking, or they're just – they don't have the will to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's more like in the direction of what you initially said that the – if everything is financialized and that's like the frame through which everything is viewed, even though – it's not true. It's not like if you do a massive spending, if you spend at the level of World War II and you build out infrastructure and retool the world, like that will fix the economy. Right. So that's not, that's just an ideological delusion. Uh, it's a mystification, but it's also just a fucking delusion. It's not real. Um, the, and this is where I'm like a little bit, I don't even know what constitutes political will. Like for Curtis, in hypernormalization, like he starts to film, he opens a film in like 1975 where there's just like this um, financial crisis within New York City, and mm -hmm. they're trying to get people to buy these bonds at auction, and no one would bid because the city bonds, which should have been like a safe bet, right? No one had any faith anymore that the, the city could continue running as it was, and it was this. Um, it was this moment where he, or for him, the, his thesis is like, it's emblematic at the moment where people shifted away from 
any idea of like politics as dealing with political questions and like the, the economy, the, they just handed everything over to people like Trump to just basically um, gut and renovate the city at their own profit. And then um, so the, the economy is where politics now happens as of 1975 and in the West. And the, the effect then is that um, politics was just relegated to a managerial class. So now we just, the politicians manage society and then capital decides what happens um, in a very top down, like highly concentrated concentrations of power sort of way. Um, the, the problem I think now has to do with like, it's unclear, legitimately unclear what, like the, the financial markets now are based on the premise of unlimited money printing and the, so those gain quote unquote gains are predicated on a Ponzi scheme. And that's been true for a long time, but it's like exacerbated since the COVID based financial crash and the biggest robbery in world history, i.e. the cares act and the fallout from it. And so, um, but it's still not really working. Like you can point to the markets and say they're doing okay, but like that's even probably going to become unstable. And so like what I'm saying is like even the sort of authoritarian premise of the, let the markets decide everything and the politicians will just be managers in the service of capital. The capitalists don't know what to do either. Like I think the, one of the, and climate change isn't the only issue here. COVID is the same thing. Um, but like what's happening is we're, you know, the ship of neoliberalism has run aground. Like it's, it's over. Um, it's not even that the ship is sinking, you know, like the glorious fight club quote of like, you know, Martha Stewart is polishing the brass on the Titanic. Like the ship is going down. Um, that's like, you know, a hundredfold now compared to 99 when that movie right. came out or a thousandfold or whatever you want. Um, and the analogy doesn't even work. I mean, it's simply run aground. It doesn't function anymore. Like you can't, you can't, you, we don't, the way things are structured anyway, um, we don't have a market solution to climate change. Like, the only thing that they could come up with would be something like, you know, Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, like the Milton Friedman, like version of like shit gets bad. And then the capitalists come in and sort of restructure everything. Well, that can work at at a sort of like local scale. Like you could do that in Louisiana. Like if only, if, if it's just um, the Gulf coast that gets fucked by hurricane Katrina uh, New Orleans specifically, but the rest of the country is still functioning, then yeah, you can do these little pockets of disaster capitalism and just like, you know, destroy the social fabric, but kind of, but rake profits out of it and then just leave people to die there. But when it's happening on the entire, you know, I don't know what the percentage of the U S GDP is on the West coast, but it's more than half um, would be my guess, or at least half. Like if all that gets sort of, wiped out or suspended for too long. 
um, on top of the, we were already in an economic crash before that, you know, hedged by again, unlimited money, money printing, but the, everything was falling apart. And now you add this to that, like there's no market solution to this. The market is in its sort of banal evil, you know, banality of evil or whatever. Um, can't compensate for these sorts of systemic shifts. It's just like, even by their own logic, it doesn't work. I mean, I rewatched a a documentary based on Naomi Klein's shock doctrine the other night, and it was never working in the first place. When they forcibly installed it in Chile, um, within a year, inflation was like 327%. It was the worst in the world. So like, and this is Michael Hudson's point, like neoliberal economics, quote unquote, free market economics only work with authoritarian control. Like you have to enforce it um, violently and destroy any um, challenge to it in order for it to operate. But even then it doesn't work. So like imagine expanding that to the whole world in the middle of like these systemic shifts that um, can't be accounted for by the market because they're too massive. The, we don't know what that looks like well, I guess we do. We know that that equals social breakdown um, because it's happening right before our eyes. Uh, but the other thing that happens is that I think like, and this is what people on the left have tried to kind of push against with, you know, limited success, I would argue, and this is sort of what Mike Davis gets into, is that like, you can't you basically can't separate the climate from the economy or anything else. Like they're, they're not, they're not separate entities. Um, and so that, well, anyway, I'll just, so on that note, um, so this is, uh, unless you had a response, sorry. No, 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 please. Okay. So this is, uh, Mike Davis from September 11th, 2020, California's apocalyptic quote, second nature. In route to Vegas and 20 minutes away from the state line, there's an exit from I-15 to a two-lane blacktop called Sema Road in the unassuming portal to one of North America's most magical forests. Countless miles of old-growth Joshua trees mantling a field of small Pleistocene volcanoes known as Sema Dome. The monarchs of the forest are 45 feet high and a, and a thousand years old. In mid-August uh, an estimated 1.3 million of these astonishing yuccas perished in the lightning-ignited dome fire. This is not the first time that the eastern Mojave Desert has burned. A megafire in 2005 scorched 1 million acres of desert, but it spared the dome, the heart of the forest. Desert plants, unlike California oaks and chaparral, are not fire-adapted, so their recovery is an open question. The invasion of an alien bunch of of an alien bunch grass known as red brome has created a flammable understory to the Joshua's and transformed the Mojave into a fire ecology. Invasive cheatgrass has played this role in the Great Basin for decades. More frequent fires will accelerate vegetation change and ultimately threaten the existence of the trees. Our burning deserts are regional expressions of a global trend. A world set on fire by climate change has unleashed a dangerous transformation of plant ecology and thus faunal populations from Arctic, from the Arctic to Patagonia, Montana to Mongolia. California's paradigmatic example of such a vicious circle 
where extreme heat leads to extreme fires that prevent natural rejuvenation and accelerate the conversion of iconic landscapes into depauperate grasslands and treeless mountain slopes. At the beginning of this century, water planners and fire authorities were primarily focused on the threat of multi-year droughts caused by intensified La Nina episodes and stubbornly persistent high-pressure domes, both of which could be attributed to anthropogenic warming. Their worst fears were realized in the great drought of the last decade, the biggest perhaps in 500 years, which led to the death of millions of oaks and pines, which then provided fuel for the firestorms in 2018 and 2019. These recent catastrophes, however, have forced scientists to recognize a new phenomenon, the, quote, hot drought. Even in years with average 20th century rainfall, extreme summer heat, our new normal, is producing massive water loss through evaporation in reservoirs and plant communities. A wet winter and early spring may mesmerize us with extravagant displays of flowering plants, but they also produce bumper crops of grasses and weeds that are then baked in our furnace summers to become fire starter when the devil winds return. Residential development in high and extreme fire danger areas where a majority of new housing in the state has been constructed over the past 20 years has also promoted the botanical counter-revolution as the thinning of forests and the clearing of chaparral opens new pathways for pyromaniacal black mustards and bromes. Weed plus dead or drought-stressed trees excuse me, weeds plus dead or drought-stressed trees is the shorthand formula for megafire. Mediterranean vegetation, California west of the Sierras and south of uh, Klamaths, has co-evolved with the fire. And indeed, oaks and most chaparral plants require episodic fire to reproduce. But routine fire, routine extreme fire in Greece, Spain, Australia, and California is now overriding Holocene adaptations of producing irreversible changes in the biota. The only real constraint on future wildfire is available ma fuel mass. More areas will become like the Malibu coast where the fire burns in the same sector every decade or two as dictated by the eight to 12 years required for coastal sage scrub to mature. In the late 1940s, the ruins of Berlin became a laboratory where natural scientists studied plant succession in the wake of three years of incessant firebombing. The expectation was that the original vegetation of the region, oak woodlands and their shrubs, would soon reestablish itself. To their horror, this was not the case. Instead, escaped exotics, most of them alien to Germany, established themselves as the new dominance. The botanists continued their studies until the last bomb sites were cleared in the 1980s. The persistence of this dead zone vegetation and the failure of the plants of the Pomeranian woodlands to reestablish themselves promoted a debate about nature too. The contention was that the extreme heat of incendiaries and the pulverization of brick structures had created a new soil type that invented colonized, that invited colonization by plants such as the quote tree of heaven, uh, Elanthus, and that had evolved over the moraines of Pleistocene ice sheets. An all-out nuclear war, they warned, might reproduce these conditions on a vast scale. Fire in the Anthropocene has become the physical equivalent of endless nuclear war. In the aftermath of Victoria's Black Saturday fires in early 2009, Australian scientists calculated that their released energy equaled the explosion of 1,500 Hiroshima-sized bombs. The current firestorms in the Pacific states are many times larger, and we should compare their destructive power to the megatonnage of hundreds of hydrogen bombs. A new, profoundly sinister nature is rapidly emerging from our fire rubble 
at the expense of landscapes we once considered sacred. Our imaginations can barely encompass the speed or scale of the catastrophe. Gone California, gone. Um, so like, I mean, this, this does a good job of obviously deftly summarizing and um, articulating, mapping the, the devastation of the problems associated and linking that to the, um, basically, you know, he's drawing the direct comparison to like new all out nuclear war, which is like the effect of what's happening on the biosphere. And so <clears throat> again, like at what level, like, so I think that this is an important task for the left is to be, to continue to do this, uh, to articulate things along these lines. Um, which isn't happening nearly enough, or at least is not understood um, at the level of gravity that's required to be able to take it seriously. Um, but again, like we're sort of, we're run aground against the, the massive weight of, and violence, I guess you could call it, uh, of the mass media apparatus. Like there's just no, there's sort of no, there's no alternative, but there's no way into it. Like um, Amber from Chapo wrote this review of this book that was kind of celebrating hashtag activism and her, she was kind of rebutting the fundamental claims around that, that basically like from a liberal perspective where everything is reduced to basically individual struggles and oppressions hashtag activism has been effective from those, that perspective insofar as like people feel better, they gain social capital, maybe they get jobs out of it if they're middle class. Enough. Um, but for, from the perspective of power um, and, you know, class struggle, it's been a total failure. And the, I mean, this is, you know, I've mentioned, I keep mentioning this because it keeps being so true and relevant. Like, you know, Anna from Red Scare's claim that like there's no socialism with social media. Like I think there's there's something fundamentally it, it's a de it's a fundamental deadlock um, to the form. And so, <clears throat> like the I I watched um, this Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, which was about social media. It was told it was they interviewed primarily. Silicon Valley people. Um, there are some problems with the documentary. Uh, there's still kind of an there's still this, of course, underlying idea that like as bad as it is and as destructive as it is, like they think. I mean, well, uh, it, I should start out by saying the kind of the people from the perspective of the people who built social media and built the manipulation apparatus and the algorithms and all that shit. To them from, you know, in their own words, like, like they asked one guy, where's this lead? He's like, in the short term, civil war. Um, and they were all basically saying it's, it's destroyed the society. Like the social fabric is destroyed because of what social media has unleashed in the world in the last 10 years. Um, and there's all, they, there's very various like layers of how that plays out, you know, interpersonally, like these kids, just a massive increase in suicide 
rates and girls cutting and like among like preteens and teens, like just exploding in the last 10 years. And obviously what's changed social media. Um, I mean, I would argue there's also an economic crash, which doesn't help matters, but right. I, I think they're, the link between social media is, is by far the strongest in, in terms of direct uh, causes, I suppose. Um, and like, you know, they don't, they of course have no solution to them. It's still the solution. It's just, Oh, do, well, we should tweak this and do that. And it's just like, there's no, I mean, this is kind of, I think Amber had hinted that this in the article uh, in the review of the book was just, that basically like, that's not like, it's not feasible. It doesn't, it doesn't shift the balance of power. Um, and like I was watching this inner or um, this speech by Charlie Kaufman, who wrote like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and being John Malkovich um, adaptation. He wrote and directed Schenectady, New York. He recently wrote and directed, um, I, I'm thinking of ending things on Netflix. Uh, fantastic screenwriter, um, like much more interesting. You know, there, there's a reason like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is so beloved by people. It's just a phenomenal film, um, as well as the rest of them. Uh, the ones I've seen, I haven't. <laughs> I tried to watch Connected in New York, and it was too fucking depressing. I oh get man, that that ruined me. It was a rough couple months after that. Yeah, so I'm, I might return to it, given their you know dire straits. But anyway, <laughs> um, he was talking about like being a screen, screenwriter and and basically his own anxiety about having to make write this speech, and he'd been preparing for it for months and putting it off because he didn't know what to say. Um, but he, he was making some a lot of really interesting points about um, how, uh, like, being a writer, he was quoting other writers about, like, the world we live in. Like, he quoted Henry Miller from 1945 about how we're just inundated with all these facts and uh, basically all this bullshit at all times and expected to sort of, like, live within it and that, like it was ruining everything. It was like kind of destroying people. And Kaufman's point was like, he wrote that, you know, 70 years ago and it was already happening. So it's all, it's that much worse now. And he was saying like all the shit that we're exposed to bad writing and bad art and bad marketing. He's like, basically it's insane to assume that that would have no effect on people's, you know, psych like psyches, their souls or whatever. And, um, his, he was taking, and he was, what was nice about it was like, he was saying like, you know, the, the way that the, these pieces of media are structured, like some of these commercials, he's like, some of these commercials move me to tears and that's like despicable. Like mm -hmm. that he's like, you know, the fundamental problem is that we're treated. He's like, I'm not gonna, he's like, we're treated like, we don't have any dignity or that we don't deserve any, and I'm not going to play that game. Um, and so like, I mean, there's a lot more to it. It was mostly focused on aesthetics uh, at some level, but what was, you know, enlightening or whatever was that he was in so as much as he, he, he was doing this and he was not obeying 
a social media logic. Like there was no like transactional nature in what he was saying. Um, he was admitting that like, he's like, you know, basically I'd be lying if I didn't assume that I know this is going to go on YouTube. I know that people are going to see it and respond to it in a certain way. And that's going to affect what I'm saying. Um, but he wasn't like, it clearly was not, this wasn't about one upsmanship or about posting. This was just about like his view of like what the world does to us and what, what he thinks is worth pursuing artistically. Um, and like why trying to like put yourself on the page in whatever fashion you're able, like that's, that's what he's interested in hearing about. Um, and it's about, it should be about where we are able to connect with each other and feel less lonely. Um, and then I was watching this like Ted talk with Ethan Hawke and he was just talking about creativity and he was basically saying like, uh, he was talking about there's <laughs> one time Alan, he, he was kind of, he, Ethan Hawke was obsessed with Alan Ginsberg, you know, when he was younger and he was reading all this Ginsberg stuff. And then he found this, um, this spot on like the tonight show or something where Ginsburg had gone on Johnny Carson and like, was like doing a Hare Krishna chant. And uh, afterward, every, all his like artistic and intellectual friends were like, what the kind of like, what the fuck are you doing? You, you sound like an idiot. Like, why did you do that? He's like, that's my job. He's like, I'm a poet. Like people who live like, normal day-to-day lives and then like turn on the boob tube or whatever after work, like they're going to see that and they're not going to understand what the fuck is happening. It's going to keep them up at night and it's going to like basically that he's provoking everyone and they're going to have to start questioning everything. And that's what a poet is there to do is to play the fool. It's to look stupid. Um, and Ethan Hawke's point was like, that's what you should, you know, you should try to connect with, he, he was like, art seems sort of like fanciful and abstract until like your dad dies. And then you start asking like, has anybody ever felt this bad before? And then it becomes sustenance. Like then it becomes, you know, like the stuff of life or whatever. Um, and his, his invocation was basically like, you know, be willing to play the fool, be willing to look stupid because like, who cares? And unless you're, if you're unwilling to do that, you're not going to like, you know, break new ground or discover anything new or create anything new um, or create anything at all because like the, the pull of habit is so strong and it's really hard to do that. Um, and all of this was like, so what I like, what was so refreshing about it felt like a weight was being lifted as I was like listening to this stuff was when, you know, without even realizing it, um, just by participating in social media and every, I do it, everyone does it. Like that's, that's the, the reality now is it's always transactional. All of it is transactional. Like whether you realize it or not, whether, even if you're pushing back against, you know, even if you're doing stuff to not get likes, to, to piss people off or to provoke people, there's still the calculus in the background. Like Bretty Sinellis once said that, um, when he wrote less than zero in like 1981 or whenever it was, he couldn't imagine anyone would ever read it. Like it, it was totally beyond the pale that would ever get published. And he was saying like, that's impossible. That's an impossible task for like a young writer. 
Like you, no one could ever engage like that now because of how much, how involved everything is with social media, you know, representation in that particular way. Um, and so like I've been in the sort of back of my mind for a long time and I've talked about it on the show or tried to like had this pull to like just sort of detach from all of that, like just to jettison all of that shit and sort of retreat into like, no one's ever going to read this. I don't, I'll never show it to anybody and just sort of like, I don't know, write or figure, create something. Um, because like without the, the draw of instrumentality as such, and that's a challenging notion to sustain even for an hour, let alone a week, let alone a month or whatever. Um, and I'm, you know, thus far unable to do it, maybe partly due to economic constraints and shit. But like, I think that there is some like fundamental need if we're going to get out of the scenario that we find ourselves in for people to begin to just quit accepting the blackmail of the world of neo, like social media is just peak neoliberalism. Um, it is just the ultimate um, tokenization, um, financialization of social interaction without being paid for it. And the exchange economy there has to do with recognition, has to do with, I guess, attention, or at least the semblance of attention. Um, and no, as a result, nobody, you know, reads books. Nobody does the, the shit that, like, historically, you know, not nobody, but, I mean, it's, it's become increasingly difficult. To the degree to which people still do this stuff has become polluted by the, the medium through which they communicate with each mm -hmm. other because it's intensified social isolation. I mean, that's not a new concept, but like people are still reacting to their own experiences via this like very destructive and vulgar form of mediation, i.e. social media. Um, that just wasn't possible 20 years ago. And you know, all these tech people who built this shit, they don't let their kids have phones. They don't let them on the fucking internet because they know how dangerous it is. Um, like, all those people send their kids to schools where there's no tablets, where it's all pen and pencil and paper, uh, because they know how much it fucks with people's heads. Um, and so, like, there, there's going to be, have to, we're going to have to figure out a way to reestablish a form of life that's not wholly dependent on social media. And I have no idea what that looks like. But you just like at, at the level of like just even feeling human, we're not, we're not we don't live there anymore. Um, and I'll read part of a, an interview that sort of addresses a version of this. But I'll let you respond. Sure. Well, yeah, and maybe the the, the interview you want to read gets at this. But I was going to say to your point about Bert Easton Ellis and less than zero, sort of the the society the unsociety un in which we find ourselves doesn't even allow that type of activity anymore you said you were interested in aesthetics more lately and, and i agree with you and i'm gonna i've been trying to read more trying to write etc but i mean literally you just can't you you can't engage in art in the way you used to you can't produce art i don't and I'm, i don't know what the data is on that i'd be curious to see to what degree do people 
is art consumed or produced now relative to a generation ago or more? Because I feel like even though it's everywhere now, it is impossible to create or consume it without it being some sort of commercial, right? And that, I mean, that's, that's different and that affects what even gets done and that, you know, and to your point, our humanity is sort of destroyed along the way. Well, like to that point, um, at the very beginning of hypernormalization, he quotes Patty Smith. Yeah. Um, you know, do you remember like roughly what she said? It's been like a couple months since I've seen the film. Uh, like she, she says something about like how she's sort of like finding herself in this world where like, it's impossible to even like connect to, I, I don't know. It was almost like this, this sort of Uber alienation or something. Yeah, I forget the specifics, but um, I do remember him, the narrator, uh, Curtis, saying something about, you know, there's this, these former bohemians now are sort of, they're not, they've abandoned mass politics and they're just kind of observing the collapse and mm. sort of creating mm -hmm. art in that environment, sort of even commenting on it, but not trying to change it in the same way. Um, and I, and then she, she made some quote, but I forget. Which is interesting because like, what I've noticed, and I think it's it's waning now, but definitely a few years ago, there was this really strong reference to um, Joy Division, like in, online, and um, and I would argue like Patty Smith. I think even the sort of like the obsession with David Bowie around his death, um, that like, I mean, for me, like, I didn't. I never really got David Bowie. Like I didn't get the fucking point of it. Like the only stuff I liked was when that Brazilian dude covered all those songs acoustically in like a life aquatic, like that <laughs> was sure. awesome. Right. Um, but like the, it, I think it's because it always, it, there always felt like a fundamental resignation with Bowie as opposed to like some of the other like overt punk stuff or whatever. Um, and I think Patty Smith, at least the way he was staging it. And this is not a, this is not even shade on these people. I'm just saying like my intuition was like, I, I don't have an interest in this sort of like kind of 50 shades of nihilism or whatever, mm. like just this view of like this despondency masked as like, it's not even melancholic. It's just sort of like, it's intentionally vapid and, um, like, I don't think Joy Division necessarily follows that same track, but there's this kind of, what, what, what's always shocking to me about Joy Division is like, um, or N New Order uh, is like, it's not that good. Like it really <laughs> just, it, it's, right. it's, <laughs> it, it's okay. I find that the covers of the songs are right. fantastic. Right. Um, but like, there's just some like kind of, like nothing's going on and maybe that's, you know, obviously aesthetically, maybe that's like comforting to people. Um, but like, it's sort of like with the cure where like, again, I like the covers of cure songs a lot. Um, but the, you listen to the actual records and it's like, it's bare bones in a way that's not good um, for the most part. And I understand the following, I understand the goth thing a little bit, but the that seems to be um well i'll say it this way that seemed to be around like 20 
that was a sp- it was strong between like 2012 and maybe 2015. Um, and then around 2015, 2016, like vaporwave was this sort of like online aesthetic thing that started to emerge. Um, what I've noticed in the last couple of years is that there aren't even these sort of meme driven aesthetic moves online anymore. Like I, th- that's, that seems to have basically collapsed. Yeah, memes are um, memes are garbage now. Yeah, they're really not good. I mean, I haven't seen. Oh, fuck, it's been it's been maybe a year since they've consistently seen anything. Maybe no longer than that. Maybe a year and a half. Maybe two years. Yeah. Um, but like, not that that was even a solution. But it was at least sort of like shelter in the storm. Um, and so I, and this has been my sort of realize, I, you know, I mentioned on the show long ago that, uh, rewatching, um, uh, the, what is it? Decline of Western civilization part three, the, the punks and the, the, the gutter punk types in the nineties. Um, the first one's good. And the third one's good. The second one's a good movie, but it's about like hair metal. And it's yeah. really it's much darker uh, because it's so weirdly right wing, but yeah. Um, the Aerosmith parts are just insane. There's yeah. There's just some really wild shit in there. Yeah. I mean, they're all worth, they're all fantastic right. films, but like, it, you know, as far as identifying with it, like what was shocking watching the um, decline of Western Civ part three, a few years back was seeing how like political, it was, but not in a cynical or even stupid way. It was like a very, they were very serious about real issues and they were very knowledgeable, even though like part of the aesthetic was just drinking all day for some of the people. Um, I remember even being at fucking like work tour in 2001 in Fargo. And they, there was like this huge, table of like all these left-wing books that I'd never seen before because this was 2001 and the internet wasn't what it is now and just being like sort of awestruck by um its existence you know it's like seeing a whole new world and of course I didn't have the money to buy a bunch of them but um I mean you wouldn't really I mean maybe it's there may be a resurgence now because everything's so politicized but um I guess what I'm getting at is just like that sort of commitment. There was even a sort of, even among the gutter punks who were just like sort of ostensibly drinking all day. Like they had a very like committed ethos. Like they were very, they had ethics, they had principles. Um, And these are things that are, again, just unimaginable to us now. Like you can't imagine. I might've mentioned on the last episode, but it's a good example. Like, Curtis was, um, I was listening to an interview with him. Russell Brand was interviewing him. So it was, of course, fucking annoying. But um, uh, but Brand was trying to kind of take the idea seriously regardless. And Curtis was saying, he was giving the example of like the civil rights movement uh, in the U.S., there were there was like a long period of time where white kids, middle class white kids, were like on principle committed to. Um, they probably wouldn't have called it black liberation at that point because it was early on. The term black wasn't even really in, in use in the fifties, in the way that it is now, um, meaning positively. And 
but like the civil commitment to the cause of civil rights, they were going to the South, putting themselves in harm's way and getting fucking killed and thrown in ditches. And they're for a long time before anybody gave a shit. And so like most of the, his point is like most of the heroes of the civil rights movement, white and black are still unknown. We don't know their names. Um, he was saying that's just unimaginable now. Like we couldn't, there's like everybody be posting about it all. They'd be mm-hmm. posting about themselves being there all the time. Yeah. Um, and like this idea that you could sacrifice yeah. yourself for something greater or for a cause or for principle, like that's just, that's sort of beyond the pale. And that's my general experience with the left, you know, in the mm-hmm. current moment is like, like, I just see it repeated over and over. Yeah. Like I was talking to a friend of the show about just recent experiences without going into specifics. I'm like, take, take a look at what happened with this organization in this XYZ town. Um, they literally kicked uh, the, the their two best organizers were women who'd been either directly exposed to or, um, were speaking on behalf of friends who'd been sexually harassed in the group. And the response was to kick their, the best organizers out of the group or ostracize them to the point where they left. Um, and then the group maintains, you know, with the, with or without the, the abuser. Um, that is just the story of the left. Anybody serious, anybody principled immediately is treated as a contagion that just needs to be either neutralized or, expunged because people are not generally in it for principle. They're in it for exposure. They're in it for, you know, narcissistic supply, whatever you want. Um, and like that, that's our fundamental problem. Like mm-hmm. Curtis's solution to this is basically like that, you know, we have to accept individualism is sort of here to stay. And we just need to figure out a way to like use that, use individualism as such as a means to organize people you know, directly. I think that's a tall fucking order. I'm not even sure if that's possible, but um, regardless, like, you know, I think the point is clear, like as much as we can't, like we're bereft of imagination in part because of the specific form of social mediation, i.e. social media, bereft of uh, imagination beyond those, the constraints of that form. Um, And so how do we, envision a new collect a new means of collective action and like sacrifice i i don't you know i obviously i don't know but um that is sort of the question because otherwise we are stuck in this like literal like endless nuclear war that mike davis is talking about without anybody paying attention well yeah uh i'm curious about this next interview so okay shoot it up um yeah so here we go. Okay, so this is, um, I'm not sure if I'll get through all of it. It's pretty long, but this is interview with Colin Wright, Associate Professor in Critical Theory, Faculty of Arts, University of Nottingham. Um, this is the interviewer. Uh, it's abbreviated NL. First of all, could you please define toxic positivity and speak about your upcoming book with a very interesting title, Toxic Positivity, a Lacanian Critique of Happiness and Wellbeing? Why have you been interested in researching this concept, toxic positivity in particular, and why in the context of Lacanian psychoanalysis? Uh, Colin Wright. Well, I should be honest from the outset that I stole toxic positivity. I took it from 
the queer theorist Jack Halberstrom, who uses the term in his book, The Queer Art of Failure. The main argument there is that, quote, success and all the positivity that is meant to come with it is, in fact, often violently normative and limiting. Dominant ideas of, quote, success inherently exclude the more marginal, quote, queer forms of subjectivity and practice. One of the toxic effects of this kind of positivity, then, is that it prohibits the bad feelings, anxiety, sadness, anger, etc., which, in a sunny and upbeat society, are bound to accompany the alternative lifestyles and forms of desire often deemed, quote, failures by wider society. Halberstam is interested in recovering the transformative potential of these negative affects. Sarah, Sarah Ahmed has made a related argument about the politics of the, quote, feminist killjoy, end quote, and I share that interest. My own project is to extend this idea of toxic positivity to the fields of happiness and well-being and the innumerable, innumerable injunctions we are subjected to nowadays to, quote, always look on the bright side, end quote. I would agree that, uh, or I would argue that this new superegoic happiness is toxic in at least three ways. Firstly, it is toxic for the whole philosophical and enlightenment project of critique, since critique often since critique implies the negative. Marx took from Hegel, for example, the idea that the, quote, labor of the negative, end quote, is the motor of dialectical change. Conflict or contradiction is what stops things becoming stagnant. And yet today, the negative is pathologized as, quote, cognitive bias, end quote, that one should simply get rid of through mindfulness, CBT, or neurolinguistic programming. This is toxic for the political function of critique as well, because sources of unhappiness are presented not as a matter of social injustice out there in an unequal world, but as an internal matter of individual responsibility for one's own attainment of satisfaction and well-being. This really nullifies some of the more revolutionary development, excuse me, deployments of the idea of happiness and its absence. For example, in the French and American revolutions, which turned the demand for happiness into a rallying cry for social, not just individual transformation. Though the American revolution quickly shifted from a civic notion of happiness to one giving primacy to the private pursuit of property and wealth. Secondly, I would argue that this positivity is toxic in the very real sense of being bad for our health. The relentless emphasis on measuring and enhancing our well-being is making many of us ill. As a psychoanalyst, I definitely encounter people who are made to feel worse by their inability to, to achieve or maintain this ideal of happiness and well-being. It's difficult to understand one's own suffering when the broader consumer culture promises endless modes of intense pleasure and fulfillment, or when, this, when social media per, presents carefully curated images of everyone else's apparently perfect lives. The complication is that we all know people perform an idealized life on Facebook, which probably bears no relation to their lived reality, and yet effectively we behave as if this knowledge makes no difference to us. We feel as if everyone but us is able to enjoy life in a direct and uncomplicated way. Thirdly, I am interested in linking toxicity to toxicology and thus to ecology, since the happiness of consumer capitalism is clearly leading to an unsustainable environmental damage. Here my inspiration is uh, Felix Guattari's short but rich text, The Three Ecologies, in which he argues for a much more integrated way of looking at the overlaps between the mental, the social, and the environmental planes. In my book, I'm trying to work my way towards some kind of antidote to the toxicity of toxic positivity. And this surely has to involve a different conception of a more than human ecological happiness, which encompasses well-being of the planet in its very f f finitude and fragility. 
as to why Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's a very simplistic answer to that, which is that I am a practicing Lacanian analyst and see most things through this lens. But beyond this personal point, will some will critique uh, will some critiques of happiness studies and positive psychology have now appeared? See people like Mike Davies, Sam Binkley, Ashley Frawley, et cetera. It is striking that psychoanalysis of Vinnie Stripe is almost completely absent from, from or even dismissed by them. Uh, I think it is, I think this is because psychoanalysis is conflated much too quickly with psychotherapy or even psychology, whereas it is almost diametrically opposed to them. This is the real omission because psychoanalysis already has quite a sophisticated theory of happiness and its opposite. For example, in Freud's civilization and its discontents, but also because the clinical practice of psychoanalysis necessarily works carefully with with these same tensions between socially provided images of fulfillment through advertising and film and television, for example, and the very different, indeed singular fantasies and desires of particular subjects. Analysts can't ignore details of happiness, but we also can't sign up to them. Uh, Lacan, moreover, saw these problems with happiness becoming a master signifier very early in the late 50s and 60s. In his seventh seminar on the ethics of psychoanalysis, for example, he called happiness a, quote, bourgeois ideology, end quote, and advised that analysts should have nothing whatsoever to do with it. He was also very dubious about the emphasis in other forms of psychotherapy on the category of affect, as if, quote, feelings, end quote, especially supposedly pleasant ones, could provide a clinical compass for analytical work. I find this a very useful corrective today when effective investments in modes of intimacy uh, have been turned into what Eva Illouz uh, is called, quote, emotional capitalism, end quote. Lacanian psychoanalysis focuses more on sometimes uncomfortable, often inconvenient subjective truths than on apparently, quote, good or pleasant feelings. Despite appearances, the latter often alienate us yet further within the normative demands of the other. As an analyst, then, we definitely do not turn suffering into a virtue as in aspects of Christianity, or into a melancholic mode of aesthetic sensibility, as in aspects of romanticism. We are still in the business of alleviating suffering, rather than celebrating it or pretending it is heroic. But equally, as analysts, we cannot orient an analysis around the premise of happiness or support our patients in their, quote, constitutional right, end quote, to pursue it. For structural reasons, analysis is ultimately subversive to these norms around happiness and well-being. Uh, this is the interviewer. On an everyday level, I think everyone encounters forms of toxic positivity. Everyone at least once has been at a party, felt sad or melancholic, and has been identified as a, quote, foreign organism, end quote, by this whole system of the fun-loving crowd, and then been fooled with passive-aggressive, flooded with passive-aggressive demands to, quote, cheer up, end quote, to, quote, enjoy, or to, quote, stop being grumpy, end quote, which is to say negative or unhappy. Or maybe they have come across a confusing job application stating something like, quote, we are looking for happy people, end quote, or they found they could not talk to friends or family members about deeply harrowing experiences or thoughts without hearing how, quote, the glass is always half full, end quote, when in reality for them, the, quote, glass felt completely empty. In short, I think most people can relate to the fact that negativity is not easily or, quote, healthily tolerated within a capitalistic culture. I was not surprised to learn then that the self-improvement industry is estimated to grow to $13.2 billion by 2022. 
in his recent published, recently published book, McMindfulness, Ronald Purser explains, quote, how mindfulness becomes the new capitalist spirituality, unquote, and the product of the, quote, narcissistic individualism of the wellness industry, end quote. He argues that, quote, mindfulness is so market friendly because it appeals to this highly individualistic entrepreneurial ethos. It's about, quote, me and self-improvement. It's thriving in a culture of narcissism. The focus is firmly on delivering a more happy self. This is a real kind of social myopia. It squarely places the responsibility for being, quote, happy within the individual themselves, rather than take into account all the systemic structural aspects of society that are causing the cultural malaise that has so many people flocking at the wellness industry for answers, end quote. I came across an article reviewing Purser's book with the title, quote, Why Corporations Want You to Shut Up and Meditate, end quote, which in my opinion perfectly captures the problem with the self-improvement industry. So could you please speak about the constant, this constant pressure and encouragement to focus solely on ourselves, on our own selves, to look for answers, to look for the answers, problems, causes, and solutions only within and never without, and also the constant pressure to enjoy. Colin Wright, I would completely agree with Purser that the kind of, quote, self-encouraged by the self-help industry is not just any old version of selfhood, but specifically the one imposed by neoliberalism. In contrast to more traditional or collectivist cultures, the neoliberal self is seen as a kind of isolated economic unit, something that must constantly be invested in with the hope of future returns that will add value. Everything is calculated to make a profit, and indeed we see frequent references to notions such as psychological or emotional, quote, capital. In his lectures on biopolitics, Foucault captured this nicely with the idea of the, quote, entrepreneur of the self, end quote, which involves subjecting all values, behaviors, and decisions to the economic rationality of cost-benefit analyses. Even in the realms of love and intimacy, witness the proliferation of not just, quote, prenups, but of, quote, pre-prenups. But unlike the homo economicus of classical liberalism, who has ascribed the power of rational decision, the neoliberal subject is essentially completely empty and malleable, making it absolutely identical with this endless task of its own adaptive self-fashioning. Hence, the constant pressure you mentioned to focus on ourselves, to literally work on ourselves, and to be the result of our self-work. On the one hand, this is presented as the essence of autonomy and freedom, quote, be all you can be, end quote, as the slogan goes, but on the other, it implies that you would be nothing without this relentless work. As well as emptying the self, the injunction to maximize happiness and well-being, to count and accumulate them, is simultaneously extremely individualizing and responsibilizing. It is all down to you. If you fail, it can only be your own fault. You must be lazy or lack, quote, grit. As you suggest, reifying this version of selfhood has the effect of completely erasing the structural aspects of broader social systems that play an enormous role in forming the self in the first place, even if individualism encourages us to deny our indebtedness to the social other that precedes us, preceded us. From a psychoanalytic point of view, narcissism can be defined by the idea that the self does not need, let alone proceed from the other, such as the illusion characteristic of the ego. But the flip side of this serious isolation for the individual oh excuse me but the flip side of this is serious isolation for the individual and a dissolution of the social bond in something like uh zygmunt bauman's quote liquid modernity end quote there is no 
there is a by no means accidental homology between the emergence of this extreme responsabilization of the narcissistic ego and the neoliberal project of dismantling the welfare state, a somewhat paternal other that was once willing to be in some way socially responsible. Neoliberalism sees, it, sees to it that the other's place is taken by the market. And this starts to answer your other question about where the constant pressure to enjoy comes from. Lacan, as you probably know, has a particular word for enjoyment, which is often left untranslated because it doesn't have a precise English equivalent. That word is jouissance. And it is helpful because it combines enjoyment with a kind of uncomfortable intensity or too muchness. So that jouissance is somewhere between pleasure and pain, or the peculiar pain-pleasure that can, that can lead us towards. If we Keep that in mind, then the fact that the market enjoins us to enjoy constantly, relentlessly, and always more rather than less can be appreciated as both pleasurable and painful because uh, painful because pleasurable. Jacqueline Miller has uh, particularly has been particularly clear about this. Where once in Freud's day, the superego was largely prohibitive and repression was the dominant psychic mechanism. Today, the superego takes the form of this injunction to enjoy without cease and without limit. It follows that subjects are exposed to the drive, including its deathly aspect without much protection from desire or fantasy. These two things work in tandem. Then, Not only must you constantly work on yourself, but you must enjoy it. Equally, this enjoyment is what entangles us in repetitive practices we also suffer from. It's as if the 20th century complaint, I can't, um, or, or, excuse me, it's as if the 20th century complaint was, I can't, whereas the 21st has become, I can't not. Um, uh, the interviewer, as already mentioned, we could observe manifestations of toxic positivity literally everywhere around us. But when this notion also leaks into the sciences, it becomes uh, not just upsetting or toxic, but in my opinion, unspeakably harmful and damaging. For me personally, almost a most shocking manifestation of science poisoned by ideology was when I heard the, uh, a very respected psychiatrist giving a lecture where she mentioned that, quote, today the opinion of many psychiatrists uh, become similar to the religious view that ungratefulness causes depression, i.e., unhappiness, end quote. She claimed that even when it comes out, comes to the material world, quote, it does not matter if you possess a lot or a little. It does not matter if you are grateful for a piece of bread or and a roof over your head or if you own all the luxuries in the world. The bottom line is, if you can be grateful for what you have, you, are happy, you will be happy, or at least you will not be unhappy and depressed, end quote. And the most striking part of this was that she presented the statement as pure fact, not, a, not as a theory. How can it be that this toxic notion that the self is fully responsible for being mentally healthy or happy uh, and that the environment is only a small and unimportant factor has become so deeply integrated and rooted, not in only into our culture, media, everyday life, politics, and so on, but also the mental health systems into the very way patients are addressed, diagnosed, and informed about their problems. Colin Wright. Yes, it is regrettably common to hear this sentiment expressed by the psychiatrists and in all sorts of other fields claiming scientific legitimacy, such as psychology and even neuroscience. Her position sounds quite like that of the Stoics, especially someone like Epicritus, who was stressed a kind of steely inner virtue that cannot be touched by external misfortunes. On the other hand, I think this resemblance with the 
eudaimonic philosophies in ancient Greece is quite superficial and should be challenged, which is why your question about how we got to the point where the psychiatrist position can be presented simply as fact is a really good one. There's a very long history behind this, which I can't outline here, though the first chapter of my book tries to, but a couple more recent, uh, recent salient factors can be mentioned. Firstly, I think the discourse of health itself has been recalibrated over the past half century so, or so in the direction of neoliberal productivity and performance, pushing it well beyond any notion of mere basic, mere absence of ailments. This can be seen in the World Health Organization's definition of health in 1948 to include a state of well-being over and above merely being free from illness. For the WHO at that point, health was, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, end quote. Moreover, by 1984, at a time when increasing ascendance for neoliberal ideas, the WHO then shifted their definition of health, making it nothing less than, quote, a resource for living, end quote. A resource determining, quote, the extent to which an individual group or group is able to realize aspirations and satisfy needs, end quote. You can see in the relation between these two definitions the trajectory that moves health more and more toward, a, toward the psychological and physiological conditions for being, above all, a consumer. Coming to meet this from the other direction, as it were, is increasingly common to hear talk of the, quote, health of the economy as if it were a body. This is why I've chosen to focus on the concept of well-being. Uh, I, I think I'm going to stop here because um, this is getting fairly long, but um, anyway, so <clears throat> obviously there's a lot there, but I think the, the trajectory is clear, like that the, especially that last point about the WHO shifting, <laughs> like literal, the literal definition of health from something focused on actual well-being to um, physical and social well-being to the ability to consume. A resource, so like, yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it, it's literally transactional. It's literally like, um, it's sort of like, again, uh, the vulgar Marxist, vulgar Marxism, the capitalists, where it's like, mm -hmm. you only exist in so far as you can consume in so far as you contribute to the social product. The point he made about the, the narcissism of neoliberalism being specifically self-focused at the expense of the other and treating the market, it's addressing the market as such as the other, um, I think is very key to understanding everything we've been talking about. I mean, that's sort of, again, apex neoliberalism is social media insofar as like my aim, you know, my ostensible aim with posting is, you know, either, you know, uh, hopefully, I guess, whatever, to inform people, to provoke people, to make them laugh, to make them smile, whatever. That is, that is aimed at the market, um, the market of social interaction, uh, rather than at people. You know, if I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you, and that's the mediation. Our current mediation is through fucking Zoom, but I'm saying, like, in, as such, like, there's no, there's no projective discourse toward the market because um, I'm addressing another person or the, even the audience, even addressing the audience, it's not the same thing. Um, and the, and so like the explosion of narcissistic tendencies as well as probably actual, like what would be diagnosed as personality disorders 
in the neoliberal and social media age is not accidental. It is the product of the form of social mediation. You know, we become what we are, or we become what we make or what we create, what we engage in, the work that we do. Posting is work. Um, being on social media is work. It's unpaid. We don't really get any benefit except a dopamine hit. Um, you know, best we get a bunch of followers or something. Um, but like, it's sort of a closed loop. Like they, they've got us surrounded. We are totally cornered as individuals. Like insofar as we understand ourselves as neoliberal individuals, we are fucked. We, there, there's no potential for a collective. Uh, as such, there's no potential for a cause. Um, there's only potential for social reproduction, you know, more social media. It's like how for Marx, capital, capital, the, the sort of like the genius of capitalism is that capital is, is aimed at only reproducing capital. And then as a byproduct, an accidental byproduct, it happens to feed a bunch of people and create houses and change the world um, and develop things, hopefully. Um, but capital's aim is only it's it's a form of drive and for Lacan drive just means the compulsion to repeat like endlessly you know it's self-referential narcissism has the same more or less same structure Um, to achieve narcissistic supply via by any means necessary and everything is sort of sacrificed to that drive um this is like fundamentally the problem so like i just want to be clear the aesthetics the focus on aesthetics i'm talking about is not the romanticism that he's critiquing as such um but rather that it seemed to be seems to be like it's almost like things are more dire than he's even describing whereas where like aesthetics is such and, and this is just probably a factor of like how things have gotten intensively worse over the last year or two, but um, aesthetics now may be a way, a real way out um, insofar as they suspend this narcissistic uh, drive because, and again, maybe that's just a wager. I'm just being hopeful, I guess. Maybe it doesn't work that way, but it strikes me that like insofar as we participate in it, we are enslaved to it. And it's for those structural reasons he lays out. So I sort of bracketing aesthetics for the moment, just bringing that all together, your comments, both in the interview itself, I'm just reminded of, uh, you probably remember Barbara Ehrenreich, the nickel and dimed uh, writer. And uh, she had put out an essay in say uh, the Atlantic or some magazine, I mean, 20 years ago now, 15 to 20. And it was called welcome to Cancerland." And this is her, I used to teach this to students in a healthcare class at a university. And this is her, her argument is that, I mean, that exact point, um, she used that as a lead chapter in a book she later wrote called bright sided, which is, you know, this argument that this constant positivity is destructive, right? From but she's coming at it from a different, maybe it's sociological perspective or something. But um, the argument in, in the essay, the cancer land one is that she, she's diagnosed with breast cancer and she sort of dives in, um, you know, aside from the treatments into that sort of subculture, the cancer subculture online, uh, message boards, social media, and so on. And she's just astounded and horrified at how when she tries to express real emotions about how angry she is about the diagnosis, how she's, of course, upset, uh, justifiably scared and anxious, and um, again, angry at not just the diagnosis, but the, the likely cause, which is 
corporations, poison, the environment, right, that sort of created this in her. When she expresses negativity, she's shut down by that subculture itself, by these, these again, these cancer sufferers who have been, who have internalized that uh, neoliberal demand that you be positive and productive all the time, even as you suffer the effects, the physical health effects, as a, a you know, a resource, uh, the, the physical health effects that have been sort of brought upon you by that neoliberal economy itself that poisoned you, right? Um, and it's a really interesting essay, and she it comes to the same conclusion that um, the interviewer just did from, again, a different point of view, but it's, it's she lays it out in a way that, uh, again, just describes and brings the health aspect into it that just paints a horrifying picture again years before this interview um and it's it's just i tried to again introduce that to students at an early age and even then uh, they were young but um i think i it was tough to sell them on that idea but i mm. wonder if it'd be different now again things are so different now well i think there's like this is always this has been baffling to me the last few years especially like um increasingly so to that point about college students and like the injunction to enjoy it and it like it, it it's becoming increasingly unclear why anyone would go to college at this point um like we know that there's no jobs i mean there there are jobs for you know certain specific almost a professional type of you know if you become a doctor you'll get a job right. if you become a nurse you'll get a job um but as far as like a liberal arts type experience um as sort of understood as its own good like that it is but it's conditioned by these market concerns because you're borrowing so much money in the u.s anyway um it's almost like the focus on wellness at the level of and happiness, the level of college is more ideological work to help justify this expense to these people who will never get out of this debt by design right. um, and enrich the universities in the process. And so like the, it doesn't surprise me that it would be hard to sell them on that because that's what they're doing. I mean, right. it strikes me that if you're going to college again, unless you're just willing to, assume that like the debt doesn't matter. It's not real. And just like sort of say, fuck it and try to use the resources that exists um, for your own benefit and assume that you're not going to have any financial security because we're not going to have a world to live in uh, or nobody's going to have financial security. So it doesn't fucking matter. Um, but short of that, I, th I think it's difficult for someone at 18 or 19 years old to really fully embrace that perspective. Maybe yeah. I'm, hopefully I'm wrong, but I'm possibly. sure I wouldn't have. No. Yeah. Um, and so, like, of course, there's going to be some, like, dimension of hopefulness as, as youth, uh, as mm -hmm. such, just being young, which is a good thing. But, right. like, David Graeber, there's some quote, uh, David Graeber, who unfortunately passed away recently, uh, rest in power. He, uh, he was talking about, like, how destructive it is to put young people in debt like this just in terms of, like, crushing their spirit. Um, which is obviously the point of all this austerity and neoliberalism. But like the flip side of that is like, if you're challenging the question, the notion of like positivity and happiness amongst a group of people who are like sort of banking on the idea that if they work hard, that they'll get what they came to get again, transactionally, like I'm not entirely sure that people went to college for that. Like, I don't think boomers went to college to get a better job. I think they went to college to get, go to college, get fucked up and like, 
get weird. Um, and again, that's like a, that's a distant shore. Like no one can imagine that today because they're, they're forced to factor in the debt load, but they, and I don't know, again, I don't know how they convince themselves to do it. Um, because of what's known, like the part of it is just being bourgeois and like assuming that they're going to end up where their parents did, or they, they have some sort of plan. Again, I don't understand, you know, I, I, I interact with when the, when I was still going to the gym for the plague, it was like, I interact with these people. It's like, you're getting a physical therapy degree. Like you're going to go $250,000 into debt or whatever, and then get a, at best $80,000 a year job. You never get out of that. Like that's not going away. Um, but I think they just don't think about it. It's again, like the will not to know thing, like the weird fetishization or whatever. Um, and I don't blame them for what other fucking options do they have? Like, that's not a, it's not a slight against them, but like the, anyway, I, I guess sort of, but that's the whole point. Like it's all a fucking trap. And I mean, maybe this is your point with Aaron, Aaron Reich's book is just like, um, I mean, it, it, it's darkly paradoxical that like, or ironic or whatever that like the, the point at which people are at their lowest where they're physically suffering, um, from cancer is the, death, yeah. is the moment where they're supposed to be the happiest and the most positive right. and their life depends. They're told that their life depends on it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, there's a lot of reasons why that's extremely toxic. Putting more pressure on people will diminish their immune response. Like my, my view of that, like if people are in those straits is to like, if you're going to tell people to get, to feel anything, tell them to get fucking angry, you know, tell them to marshal the resources to fight it. Cause it will help their body fight it. If they're mentally trying, you know, saying like, fuck this shit. Like, but again, those emotions aren't allowed. Um, but like the, the sort of the, the destructive angle there is like th- this cult of po- toxic positivity. I would just say positivity is toxic as such. I don't think, I mean, it seems redundant to me to call it toxic positivity, but I understand why he's doing it. Um, and he alluded to it initially is the, the fundamental problem is if you are not allowed or you're enjoined to feel only certain things, then you're not going to see the injustices around you. There's a reason why cults, why the the focus, they're brainwashing. Like I've been watching this documentary about the Nexium cult, um, which is sort of like a updated, I would say kind of an updated Scientology um, that became this like brutal sex cult. Like, I mean, all cults are sex cults, but this one was like, they were branding people and like um, getting collapse, forcing them to give up sexual and financial collateral in exchange for like compliance. And like, and this was like a secret part of an organization that was otherwise like this kind of networked capitalism, this conglomeration of all these companies people started and trainings and all this shit. Um, But the, you know, the basic mind control framework is like still there, which is like, you know, you're in control of how you respond to stuff. Not true. Uh, like, so if you're meaning it, which gives the leverage to the cult leaders to like, Oh, if you're not feeling a certain way, that's on you. And so let's, you know, it's, it's AA on steroids. Um, and so like the, the, that dimension of it or whatever, like he said that 
the the title of that um, review was something like corporations want you to shut up and meditate. Like that's exactly right. Like keep giving us your money and your time and your life and your servitude in exchange. You know, we give you nothing, but we tell you what to do. Um, that's like, it's no wonder that the, the, the result of every single cult is just like some brutal, like um, sexual slavery or whatever, because that's the only place it could be leading. Like a truly emancipatory movement would have to embrace and indulge. And I don't mean that pejoratively indulge in a positive sense. Everyone's the, the breadth of everyone's experience. Cause how else could you articulate problems correctly or, you know, directly without that? Like um, one of my professors in college had said something about how Malcolm X always saw anger as a positive condition. Like that's but like, had you know, I don't know if he said it had revolutionary potential, but it's like, it should be understood as like a, something valuable. Um, and that's, that's countercultural. Like Alenka Zupancic in her book, The Odd One Out, uh, or Odd One In, uh, about comedy, this sort of psychoanalytic philosophical structure of comedy, she talks about how they're like um, uh, something similar to toxic positivity that like, it be- and this is book was written, 10 years ago or more, I think. Uh, but she said in there that basically like biopolitics and this like idea that like your emotions are sort of <laughs> the product of your, your essential soul, which is this neoliberal notion that like you have to work on yourself because you have to purge these quote bad emotions. Like it's seen as people who don't experience the right emotions. They're beginning to be seen as like a uh, subhuman, like as a different species. And I think like, you know, I'm not on Instagram, but I assume that's what Instagram is like. If you're not positive and, and shiny and attractive, like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like you're, you don't equal, you, you don't have as literal, literally as much value to sponsors and whoever as someone who's just like, you know, shit's, shit sucks, dude. Or, you know, whatever. <laughs> just talking that bullshit on Facebook or whatever. Um, and you know, that like treated as a social contagion and all these, things. these are all very right wing ideas. Like these are, you know, proto fascist ideas about like everyone needs to be on the same page and doing the same thing. And if you're not, you're a threat. Um, and that the solution to all the problems. And again, this is where neoliberalism runs aground in the face of climate change and COVID and the economy and shit is, uh, the real economy is precisely that like, not using plastic straws and recycling your fucking Starbucks cups isn't cutting the mustard. You know, that's the real polishing the brass on the Titanic. Like the, you know, there's always, there's those like pictures of people playing golf and the wildfires are engulfing Mm -hmm. everything around them. They're still playing golf. Like that's effectively what people are doing when they're engaged in this hyper individualistic response, quote unquote response to climate change. Like it's, it's, it's a delusion. It's literally crazy. Um, you know, what, what is it? A hundred companies produce 70% of the greenhouse gases. Like it's, you're never gonna, you're never gonna outrun it by mm. individual pursuits. Um, but people have been conditioned. People have been told that this is how you are a good person. Like it is moral. It is moralism in that, in that way, but they take it on as an ethic almost. And it's just this kind of white middle-class um, version of reality. That's, sort of like it's like the return of the repressed of what the hippies were unable to totally um overcome 
and we're all paying the price. Everything is on fire now because collectivity is no longer available. All we have is individual individualism, um, individualistic nihilism and narcissism that like with no end. And so the, at the very least, you know, I find this like, and again, I don't necessarily blame individuals for becoming susceptible to it or whatever, because it's, it's hard to, it's like in they live, you know, Zizek's like, why is that fist fight so long when he's trying to get them to put on the glasses? Because it's hard, you know, like telling the truth and seeing the truth is it's painful. Like it's violent. And um, you don't want to do it. Yeah. And who wants to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, but without that, we are doomed for real. Like there's truly no way out. And so like, um, you know, <laughs> that, that's why I'm like, I'm perfectly willing to tell everyone how pissed off I am all the time because like, I know it's disruptive, but at the same time, it's like, why should I lie? What, you know, I hope that gives other people permission to at least in their own minds be like, yeah, this is kind of fucking bullshit. Even if they're scared socially to say it. Um, and that's not a solution. I'm just saying like, unless we figure out a way to disrupt the, the machines that are operating within us, like, you know, there, there truly is no way out. And that might be a good place to stop. I would only add for, for what it's worth um, that the university at which I work uh, has this, you know, it has a wellness center and a wellness coordinator, right? Uh, That's a paid position. And so, and they have this program uh, called Zen and 10. And this is where um, the university pays, um, I guess, a yoga instructor to go to different buildings and departments uh, several days a week to, again, this is all before COVID, but to conduct 10-minute meditation uh, yoga exercises uh, at the school. And I, you know, people in my own office and at, at the, the place I'm at, the building I'm in, they, they do it, right? They go and participate. And I obviously, for the exact reasons you've been describing, I just, I don't participate on principle and I think it's insane. And, you know, I, I've... But for the same reason, I have to hesitate, but I can't be as openly vocally critical of that program as I want to be for the reasons you mentioned, because it, like, I'll be seen as insane, right? And it'll affect my performance or I might, you know, risk, you know, whatever, losing my job. Right now, I'm the only income in my family, et cetera. And again, this is this is all before COVID that I'm describing, but I, you know, I've brought it to some people. I've, I've mentioned that stuff, uh, all those arguments that this is insane. Why, you know, why are they giving us meditation um, as part of a core benefits package when just give me more money, right. Or reduce my workload. Right. Like that's, that's what you yeah. should be doing uh, mm-hmm. with that, with that, those resources. And um, you know, a couple of people kind of get it when I, when I whisper that, but I, I know some people I just can't say that too, because they think I'm crazy for being so negative on this allegedly positive scheme. Right. Uh, it's an excellent uh, point and example. And it just, as you're describing it, it's like, they're trying to literally keep people from killing each other, like or overthrow, burning everything to the ground. Like that's what that sounds like to me. It's like, again, Ned Flanders in power in that Treehouse of horror episode where they're literally putting hooks in people's lips to make them smile <laughs> the corners yeah. of their mouths. Yeah. Um, and they're all enslaved uh, in, in the guise of like positivity or whatever. Yeah. And the, it reminds me of, um, and again, you know, the future's on the periphery, the Ballard quote, uh, years, seven years ago or something, um, there was like a co-op house in, in town and, uh, 
there's of course a bunch of horrible internal problems, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, they had meals and stuff and it was fun sometimes. And one time I remember being over there and there was some, you know, there's always some fucking crunchy people there. Um, but somebody was like extra, extra crunchy and was trying to be like, Oh no, you know, doing the whole, like the, the quote unquote soothing, which is all just like gaslighting, you know, you know, you guys need to like, he was trying to, I don't know if he was, do, I don't think he was doing meditation with people, but he was trying to like sell everybody on being calm. And I'm just sitting there kind of smiling, like, uh, you know, th- in my head, like, yeah, okay, dude. And then it was like, as soon as he left, then people just like got super rowdy. Like they almost got violent because it had been repressed even for a couple hours or something. And it's like, that's what I think it really is uh, there for is it is to preempt the, um, the uh, logical result of trying to, like you said, financially or time-wise repress people. Like neoliberalism demands 24-7 workloads and attention and positivity. And so like it makes sense that they're going to send in an army of yoga instructors to try and um, make people feel better. I should point out that yoga was (laughs) – Yoga was originally designed as a sex cult, by the way. Um, that no one, hippies don't want to talk like people like yoga don't want to talk about that, but that's what it was. Um, and so it fits. No wonder it fits so perfectly with neoliberalism, because they're trying to literally give people endorphin boosts to keep. It's like a drug to keep them from freaking the fuck out uh, about their real social conditions. And so it's like Zizek had. I'll try and find the quote it was in a this obscure book of interviews but he talked about how they they did the same the power structure did the same thing i think it was in somewhere in like poland um or one of those like eastern bloc countries and there was sort of a leftist and it was communist but like a leftist uprising had taken power or was beginning to or they were the power structure was scared and so they didn't send in the cops to beat everybody up all they did was send in soft drugs send in a start distributing Buddhist uh, tracts and like basically use new age obscurantism to just um, pacify everyone. And it worked and they, they ended up losing power because they, uh, the, the power structure figured out how to um, just kind of soften everything. And Chomsky's talked about that all, you know, since the beginning of an industrialization, like there was, there was an active, uh, attempt to keep people pacified by making sure that workers had access to cheap beer and cigarettes and coffee um, because it it sort of mystifies the situation like it gives them kind of an out um, and like so yeah the that's why I mean it, it's always I don't know if it's sad. It's more funny to me. Like, cause I know some people are into yoga and I don't, I, I don't like, I respect them as people and shit. Like, and, but it's still this kind of like, it's like, you know, almost like you, you see how <laughs> you see how you're just playing the fucking game. Right. Like I know it makes you feel better, but like, maybe that's the problem. Maybe it should, maybe the, the horror of our world isn't a place where, feeling better is should be the goal and to like cap it off i'm gonna read this this is a pair of quotes that someone posted um 
the first one is uh, from Marx and the second one is from Sartre. So in no way does the machine appear as the individual workers means of labor. It is distinguished. It's distinguishing characteristic is not in the least as with the means of labor to transmit the workers activity to the object. This activity rather is posited in such a way that it merely transmit the, transmits the machine's work. The machine's action on the raw material supervises it and guards against interruptions. Not as with the instrument which the worker animates and makes into his organ with his skill and strength, and whose handling therefore depends on his virtuosity. Rather, it is the machine which possesses skill and strength in place of the worker. It is itself the virtuoso, with the soul of its own and the mechanical laws acting through it, and it consumes coal, oil, etc. Not just the worker consumes food, or just as the worker consumes food to keep up its perpetual motion. And then this is the Sartre quote. Marx here refers to the contradiction which opposes the productive forces to the relations of production. But this is really the same contradiction as that mentioned above, which forces the working woman to live a prefabricated destiny as her reality. She would try in vain to take refuge in intimate, quote, privacy. Such a remedy would betray her directly, become simply a mode of subjective realization of objectivity. When semi-automatic machines were first introduced, investigations showed that specialized women workers indulged in sexual fantasies as they worked. They recalled their bedrooms, their beds, the previous night, everything that specially concerns a person in the isolation of this self-enclosed couple. But it was the machine in, in them which was dreaming of love. The kind of attention demanded by their work allowed them neither distraction, thinking of something else, nor total mental application, thinking would slow down their movements. The machine demands and creates in the worker an inverted semi-automatism which complements it, an explosive mixture of unconsciousness and vigilance. The mind is absorbed but not used. It is concentrated on lateral supervision, and the body functions mechanically while yet remaining under surveillance. I mean, is there a better definition of social media than that? Like that's what it creates, what it makes out of us. And so this is the problem with uh, the misunderstanding of the left about getting rid of uh, alienation. Like the, I won't go all the way into that, but um, rather the specific form of alienation that's being described here, the specific form of alienation as a result of social mediation via social media, it should fucking piss us off because it is turning us into zombies. That is the word. Those are the words used by the tech people who built this shit. They want to turn us into zombies. They want to turn us into automata. Um, like that combination of um, vigilance and unconsciousness. I mean, that is what clicking on shit on social media is. And that creates this reality that we find no escape from. So if you're not getting angry and not paying attention, or you're being hoodwinked by, you know, hucksters and carpetbaggers with fucking yoga mats and um, Buddhist tracks. So the, the way out has to be some version of, unfortunately, because it's annoying, but that whole like tune in drop out thing. Like we have to, even though the hippies failed and their, their approach was wrong, we still have to figure out a way to disrupt our own experience of this. Otherwise, again, we're fucking doomed. <laughs>